Hey, everybody, this is Joe. I've got a new podcast project for you that I'm doing with my friend Vincent. Alas, there's no Steve, no Devin, so this is not Thinking Sideways. It's a new podcast called The Shocking Details. Check out our website at www.theshockingdetails.com. And, of course, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere else. But I wanted to say this. uh, We were messing around with some different audio gear for this one. And the sound quality isn't quite the best. But rest assured, in the future, episodes will sound a lot better. So, enjoy. Featuring Joe from Thinking Sideways Podcast and filmmaker Vincent Caldell. This is The Shocking Details. Yes, that is correct, Joe. I'm here on the banks of the Puget Sound, where a mystery is unfolding tonight. After an emergency beachside landing, software impresario and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates has been reported missing, and things only get stranger from there. Apparently, Mr. Gates was aboard his Learjet, returning from a conference in British Columbia, surrounded by business associates, when he excused himself to use the plane's restroom. A few minutes later, his personal assistant went to check on him and found that he was not in the washroom at the back of the airplane nor was he anywhere aboard the craft. A massive search is underway at this time, but as speculations and rumors swirl, authorities admit they are no closer to locating the billionaire's whereabouts. So imagine that one day you pick up the paper and it tells you that somebody really rich and famous has just disappeared, say Bill Gates. And by the way, Bill Gates didn't just disappear while he was on his way to the Quickie Mart for a pack of smokes like most people do. No, he actually vanished, as you heard, from his corporate Learjet in mid-flight, and nobody else in the plane even saw it or heard it happen. I mean, that sounds impossible. It sure does, but something like this actually did happen. Somebody vanished from his corporate jet about 90 years ago. Alfred Lowenstein was one of the richest guys in the world at this time, and he had to relieve himself. This is 1928. He rises from his seat, and he walked back to the back of the plane where the restroom was housed. And he passes his business associate, Arthur Hodges. He saw him lumber toward the back to the rear of the craft. The English Channel shooting by underneath him. His secretaries and his loyal valet, Fred Baxter. Uh, They all see him. They all see him go. But just like that, Alfred Lowenstein, financier, innovator, philanthropist, and one very rich fellow is gone. Just like that. Vominosed. And this was on a warm July night in 1928. Over the English Channel. When he didn't return after 10 or 15 minutes, uh, Mr. Baxter, the valet, went to check on his employer, Mr. Lowenstein. He found that the head was empty. There was quite literally not any sign of Lowenstein aboard this plane, which was a Fokker 7 tri-motor. Not a very huge plane, frankly. Uh, Baxter made his way to the cockpit and handed a note to the pilot uh, telling him that Mr. Lowenstein had disappeared. Yes, the impossible had happened. He had vanished somehow off of a plane. So let's back up. Who vanished? Who was Alfred Lowenstein? What in his biography could have left so many theories in the wake of his vanishing? Well, Mr. Lowenstein was born in Brussels in 1877. By 1914, he had established a successful bank and made extensive investments in electric power and artificial silk, which were two new and very growing industries at that time. In 1926, he founded International Holdings and Investments Limited, which was kind of almost a venture capital company. It raised large amounts of money from investors who wanted to climb on board the Lowenstein money-making train. 
So at the time of his death, Lowenstein was one of the richest men in the world. In 1908, he married Madeleine Massone, who was from a prominent Belgian family. She was beautiful, elegant, sophisticated, but reportedly not very warm or emotional. And the marriage wasn't passionate. But Alfred and Madeleine made the most of their arrangement. For Alfred, a trophy wife and a male heir, and for Madeleine, stability and, you know, more money than she could have ever dreamt of. Lots and lots of money. Doesn't hurt. May not have been the stuff of romance novels, but I don't think either had much to complain about. No, reportedly they actually got along quite well. Yeah. But back to our plane ride, uh, when Mr. Baxter, the valet, looked in the head, as I said, Lowenstein wasn't there, uh, which was strange. There's nowhere else he could have been. I mean, the plane is essentially uh, divided into four sections, a cockpit, passenger compartment, the head, which is also where the entrance to the plane is, the entry door. And beyond that, the cargo area, which cannot be accessed from inside the plane. So there was literally nowhere he could have gone. And so when Baxter found uh, the empty head, he went forward, as I said, and handed a note to the pilot, Donald Drew, saying he had disappeared. Now, at this point, the aircraft is still over the English Channel, about five miles north of Dunkirk, France. There remains speculation as to exactly why Drew chose to land the plane on a beach versus putting it down at the nearest airfield. If he explained himself when it happened, that explanation has been lost to time. Now, the beach at this time was under the control of the French military. And they, of course, when they noticed a strange airplane uh, sitting down on their beach, they went out there with some questions. The, when they were apprised of what had happened, they instructed the crew to fly to the nearest airfield and phone the police. Uh, and when they did this, uh, they offered a, a fairly simple explanation for what they thought had happened. The pilot and the co-pilot both told the police that the, the exit door of the airplane opened fairly easily and that they believed that perhaps Alfred Lowenstein had bumped against the door. The door flew open and Lowenstein fell out of the plane. They eventually recovered the body after about three weeks and it only led to more questions than answers. And it was an unrecognizable corpse, badly decomposed. Fishermen found it, and when they found him, he was wearing Lowenstein's watch. Lowenstein. <laughs> Lowenstein's <laughs> that watch. That gets me too. His silk underwear, his socks, and his shoes, and the rest of his clothes he was wearing were never found. Lowenstein was uh, wearing shoes, but then somehow his pants came off. That's an odd him. one. I don't quite get that one. Maybe the fisherman took the pants. I don't know. Uh, but a private autopsy was done at the request of Lowenstein's wife, Madeline. Uh, he was found to have a cracked skull and several broken bones, which is not inconsistent with a long 4,000-foot fall uh, into the English Channel from an airplane. Doctors concluded that he had died from the fall, uh, and otherwise they found nothing abnormal. There was no poison in his system. He had no big medical issues. There was no indication of foul play, no defensive wounds. Madeline had Alfred buried in her family's cemetery in an unmarked grave. She also declined to attend his funeral. But the case, it wound down eventually in the press. Eventually, curiosity about his death was uh, minimal from officials, to say the least. Part of which being that he died outside of any official jurisdiction. That's right. He was over the English Channel. And with that, he was gone again. So, another mystery for us to solve. Uh, we have, there's various theories. Uh, could have been suicide. It could have been an accidental death, as the pilot and co-pilot thought. And some people even thought perhaps murder. And there was even some discussion of perhaps an Orient Express sort of murder scenario where everybody on the plane 
took part in the killing. I, I like the theory that maybe he tried to disappear. It could be that. Maybe he faked his own death it's not to, so he could skip town. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a viable theory also. But go back to the beginning here. Let's go I'll bring you in on a few more details here. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. It was July 4th, 1928. Uh, Lowenstein and his entourage left the Croydon Airfield in the south of London. It was apparently the number one aerodrome. In at, England at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So they take off about 6.30 p.m. And the plane was to the plan was to fly to Brussels, about 200 miles east on Lowenstein's private airplane. As you informed us, that's a Belgian-made Fokker 7 trimotor. Yeah. Um, a fun little plane that was capable of cruising at a breathtaking 106 miles an hour. <laughs> so this should have been about a two-hour flight, assuming okay. no headwinds or anything like that. The weather was good. Sunset at Dunkirk uh, was about 9.07 p.m., so it was a daylight flight. So and, let's also talk about who's on there. Yeah. The suspects. Uh, yeah, our possible murder suspects or witnesses so or whatever was, you want to call them. There were six people on the plane. There was Donald Drew, who was the pilot. Robert Little, who was a co-pilot and mechanic. Fred Baxter, that was Lowenstein's valet. Arthur Hodgson, who was a secretary and business associate. Eileen Clark, who was a stenographer. And Paula Bidelon, who was also a stenographer, correct? Yeah, also. He uh, he uh, actually, uh, Lowenstein liked to travel with a couple of stenographers because he was a very, very energetic, busy guy. And he was constantly dictating memos and letters. And so having two stenographers there to bounce back and forth between them apparently was his just standard way of doing business. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the reasons he got so rich is the guy was just so energetic. Uh, but it should be noted that by this point in his life, he had developed a, a few health problems. Uh, he was a workaholic and a stressful job. He had apparently very high blood pressure. Uh, and he had, he had some recent lapses, which may have been related to the stress and perhaps the high blood pressure. He had some absent-mindedness, which included one incident where he nearly walked into the propeller of his plane. That's, that would be the Fokker 7 trimotor. Nearly walked into it. Um, so, I mean, that would maybe lead to the theoretical explanation that it could be an accident, that he just sort of Mr. Magooed out the back of the plane. Yeah, he could have, like, mistaken the door of the head for the uh, for the door of the exit door of the plane. And it, so, it would have been dark at this time? No, it would have been light still. Okay. But okay. I don't know how light it was inside that airplane. Yeah. Uh, of course, and, and that has been... That has been proposed as a, as a theory is that perhaps he mistook one door for the other. But I have a problem with that. Okay. Which is this. Um, the way it worked is, is to save weight, they didn't have a separate door. There was a door between the passenger compartment and the little compartment at the back that had the entry foyer and that had the head. Mm -hmm. And there was a door between that. And that door doubled as the door to the head. Mm. So when that door was when that door was open, then the head was closed, oh. and when that door and now and people are boarding and deboarding the plane, mm -hmm. and uh, in flight, if you needed to use the head, then you just went back and shut that door between the the main cabin and that little foyer, mm -hmm. and use the head. The head at that point has no door on it; it's open. Mm -hmm. So if you walk back into that little foyer and close the door between it. And the main passenger cabin, then, then there was no chance of mistaking the head door for the exit door. Yeah. Because the head would have no door on it. He could look in there and see a toilet. Yeah. Well, and then also mm. the police attempted to 
to open the door mid-flight on a similar aircraft. Well, yeah, they this is do it. Yeah, they tried that at cruising speed, which I said is about 106 miles an hour, and they they tried to force the door open, and they found that well, it didn't want to open. I mean, just try opening your car door on the freeway at 60 miles an hour and see what, you know, it's not (laughs) easy, right? It makes sense. It actually makes perfect sense. Imagine it nearly double the speed. Uh, So so the whole idea that he fell out of the plane seems a little silly to me. Now, Uh, refresh my memory. When the plane landed, did they find this door open or closed? Closed. It was closed. So it was shut. Yeah. It's nothing, nothing seriously wrong. There there was one theory that uh, one person put out is that, is that perhaps the pilot and the co-pilot had conspired to murder Lewinstein and they mm-hmm. placed a door that was faulty, that didn't latch correctly on the uh, in the entry to the plane, landed on the beach so that one of them could hop, hop out of the plane and pull that door off the plane and then swap it with the door to the luggage compartment, which was an identical size door and which worked correctly. And that's one thing. I find that a little hard to believe because even if the door didn't latch correctly, it still would not have come open easily. Okay, so now we're getting into murder. If, if these guys wanted to kill him, what? why would they do that? Why would the pilot kill him? Well, I know. And, uh, well, for one thing, of course, you know, being a highly successful millionaire, he's obviously screwed some people in the past. And so he had okay. a few enemies in that, so in that respect. It could have been a hit that somebody paid the pilot and the co-pilot to murder him <laughs> is a possibility. Right. Um, and, uh, and and the, the possibilities of suicide and murder kind of mixed together here because uh, in spring and summer 1928, uh, an anonymous document was being circulated in financial circles in Europe, which accused Lowenstein of quite a few financial crimes in the course of building his little empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, this actually caused a, a big hit on his holding company's stock. It did plummet. Uh, and so on paper, at least, his fortune did did actually go down quite a bit. And people involved in business dealings with Lowenstein began to see him as a liability. Uh, papers reported he'd been turned down for a million-dollar loan. Uh, okay. So apparently it was maybe a little hard up for, for walking around cash. Right. And, uh, and so is it possible that his financial empire was about to fall apart? And the pressure got to be too much. This would explain the suicide thing. But also, he had business partners in his holding company. Mm-hmm. This is where murder comes in. If they saw him as more of a liability than an asset at this point in time, then perhaps they thought they should just get him out of the way. And then they could just say, well, he's gone. No harm, no foul. Let's go back to business as usual. I mean, I think from, pardon the bad pun, 30,000 feet, that, that looks good. But yeah. when you really start thinking about it, I don't, I don't know that that holds up it's murder kind of, I mean, you know. murder or suicide if it's suicide how's he get out of the plane they well, tried to open the door and couldn't do it that's it yeah he was in his 50s I'm not sure what kind of shape he was in but it would have been pretty difficult to force the door open far enough to, to get out of the plane right I mean, uh, maybe he could have somehow forced it and squeezed through it and I don't know maybe maybe yeah. and then in terms of murder there has to be I mean Joe there has to be an easier way to kill a guy than in a tiny, <laughs> tiny space with yeah. six witnesses or four other witnesses, whoever was involved. Yeah, well, there, there's got to be. I mean, I would think there's poisoning uh, or maybe run them over with a car. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to kill somebody. Right, and, and make it look like a random mugging on the streets of London. Yeah. And there's, uh, it's just not a very elegant way to go about a murder. Oh, I know, I know. And But there is, a, there is one guy who's actually probably more than anybody else researched uh, this case and uh, that the guy's name is William Norris, and he wrote a book called The Man Who Fell from the Sky, which was published in 1987. 
And he is uh, the foremost proponent of the murder theory. He believes that pilot Drew and co-pilot Little were hired by Lowenstein's business partners to kill him. Uh, some other possible suspects might include his wife or some of his enemies, as I said. Um, I don't think that his wife really is a viable suspect personally. So why his partners wanted to kill him? As I already mentioned, there was that anonymous document that was making the rounds. So they wanted to they wanted to perhaps avoid being drug under by him if he did wind up going down for a bunch of financial crimes. Uh, which seems like a reasonable motive. Again, it would be there's easier ways to do this. <laughs> yeah, and 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 of course, you know, in a sense, um, the other problem I have with this theory is that when he when the word came that Lowenstein had disappeared, when that hit the news, the stocks in his company dropped quite a bit. So these guys actually these guys actually lost money. His partners lost money when he disappeared. Yeah, and then when killing the, you know if you were yeah. if you were to kill Elon Musk. Yeah, what happens to SpaceX? You right, know? exactly. Yeah. That stock would probably fall. It would uh, be a great money making proposition. Indubitably, it would fall. Did I just say indubitably? Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, I I think they really would have done more damage to themselves by killing him. But again, I don't know how strong the case of for financial malfeasance was against Lowenstein either. Yeah. Do we uh, have any idea who uh, distributed this document? This anonymous document? Uh, I think the the name eventually did come out, and I think I was uh, I think I messed up and didn't uh, note it in my notes here. <laughs> Damn it! Well, I know. So okay, but we, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we think we know who it was, and it was. Uh, yeah, would it, they be considered a suspect? Um, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I don't, I don't think so. And I think that if you if you really want to murder him, if you got that big of a grudge against him, maybe this is just me and my mindset. I would I would be thinking I wouldn't telegraph my motive to everybody by by you know panning this anonymous letter and then killing him. When mm-hmm. by the way, when when eventually your name is going to be linked to the letter. Yeah. And he'll be a prime suspect. Maybe the idea yeah. was to knock him out of his position of power with the letter. And when that failed, they crafted the could have been plot. That could have been it. Yeah, I suppose so. Or maybe the idea was to just like um, uh, blacken his name enough so that when he disappeared, people would, instead of being shocked and dismayed, would just be <laughs> right. kind of relieved. Right. Maybe that was the idea. So I don't know. All of these plans are yeah. so elaborate. Though. They are. They're, and it is rather elaborate. But but William Norris, the author, did some extensive research, as I said. He did find that both Drew, the pilot, and Little, the co-pilot, after that flight, lived uh, well beyond their means for quite a long time. And as for the valet, the secretary, and the stenographers, well, if they didn't participate in the murder, they must have been at least paid off and under this theory or maybe made huh. to disappear. And, I, and actually, Arthur Hodgson, the secretary, and the two stenographers actually do vanish from history uh, after this point. That's interesting. So maybe they were murdered, done away with. Murdered. Baxter. I mean, it's easy to lose somebody murdered. in 1926, though. But uh, Mr. Baxter, the valet, on the other hand, did not vanish. He was hired by Lowenstein's son, Bobby Lowenstein. Uh, but he did die several years later, about four years later, I think, uh, from an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound. Yeah. Uh, sure. Well, made with Bobby Lowenstein's revolver, by the way. It's also sketchy. I mean, this is so it's so weird how like there's there's people disappearing and suicides. Yeah, one it does suicide, seem like there's some there's something to it. There is something sketchy about this. Somebody vanishes, and the suicide, of course, was years later. My, one of the theories that I have, and I may be jumping ahead of myself here, is that if you're thinking that perhaps Baxter the valet was murdered and made to look like a suicide. Maybe he found out something he wasn't supposed to know. Maybe he found out that Lowenstein had, had disappeared, was living somewhere else under a different name. And once that once that 
once he found that out, he had to be gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I mean, so if we're going to get onto that theory, I, I favor, in general, much more pedestrian explanations of things like this. Yeah, me too. Uh, but in this case, the thing that kind of makes the most sense is that he pays off the people on the airplane, lands yeah. the airplane in France, as you would say, beats feet out of there. Yeah. The police come. They say, we lost him. Yeah. And some he way, fell out of the plane. Yep. Yeah. He's a, he's in a car headed for Belgium, headed for Russia, headed for wherever he wants to go. He could have even actually, um, he could have even not told most of the people on the plane. He could have just told the pilot, mm-hmm. say, here's what I'm going to do and I'm going to pay you. Or maybe he told both pilot and co-pilot and he paid them off handsomely and said, look, you know, I'm going to go in the back and, uh, and well, actually thinking about it. Let me think here. So I have had this thought that perhaps he hadn't had that plane that long. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he bought it for a reason, and that and that is that from the from the head or or from the forty eight compartment, perhaps he could have installed a hidden door. Mm-hmm. So, if he wants to fake his own disappearance and death, so he's got his plane all prepped and everything. He goes back. He's already he's already clued the pilot in. He said, "Land me on this beach," and and so and then he goes to the head, but goes and hides with right. the luggage instead. And as soon as he touches down on the beach, then he heads, he out, the heads out the luggage compartment door and lays flat. And the, the pilot, of course, under instructions, you know, moseys down the beach away, taxis down the beach. And then Lowenstein picks himself up and walks across the beach. At this point, he's far enough in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. He just looks like some random dude walking down the beach. Yeah. So he walks across the beach and there's a road right there off the beach where he's got perhaps... Hypothetically, somebody waiting in a car to pick him up. I think what's I think what's challenging about the disappearance, all the disappearance theories for me, is that we don't know enough about Lowenstein's finances. We don't. Yeah. You know, did he have some money squirreled away? Did he have a million bucks in a Swiss bank account that we don't know about? Well, you know, I'm, this is again me and my mindset. If I were say anybody stinking rich, like say if I were Bill Gates or anybody, I would have. Uh, say mm, five, ten million bucks in just cash, you know, just squirreled sure. away okay. in, in, in various hiding places. I would have some gold. I would have all kinds of stuff. Okay. I, I wouldn't have all my money just in, in stocks and bonds and things like that. I'd want to have some cold, hard cash. Well, and in the 1920s, this is the era of bearer bonds of extremely large currencies. Yeah. He could be in, we, we know that he was invested in a lot of different businesses. Yeah. So, I mean, that's uh, that's the one of, of all the ones that, that we've come across. And that's why I think there's actually an entertaining case for me is that yeah. I would say, oh, it probably was just an accident. Uh, but it kind of is the one that makes the best sense, especially since they didn't land on an airfield. Yeah. That's really what keyed me in on it. We're talking yeah. about this. They they land on the beach. Why did they land on the beach? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a few things about that that we should to, to take a look at. Here. Yeah, Hang let's, on, let's dig into the beach. Because that kind of flipped my whole thinking on it. Pilot and the co-pilot told the police that the door opened easily. Yeah. They should know that when that airstream is pushing on the door, it's not yeah. going to open easily. If they're pilots. So let's uh, so let's let's look at all the evidence. Consider this. The pilot, Donald Drew, puts the plane down on a deserted beach. Drew and Little both told the police that the door on the airplane opened easily, and that was not true. Exactly. And both Drew and Little appeared to have lived beyond their means after the disappearance. The incident took place over the English Channel, outside of the jurisdiction of any estate. Yeah. And of course, as I said, the Fokker trimotor belonged to Lowenstein, so he had control over it and he could have modified it. Compartment to hide in, a hatch to escape from. Yeah. 
Exactly. So considering all those things, I say we got well, the suicide, the murder, I, and the, the murder again. I just think, I just find that too hard to believe. And I typically, in cases like this, I usually decide I usually go for something other than he arranged his own disappearance. But in this case, I don't know. I got to say, I kind of like the disappearing theory, like yeah, you said. Kind of with, um, on the same page. And there's another possibility, which is that maybe he didn't even get on the plane to begin with. And while everybody's everybody's like looking over the English Channel for him, you know, or right. And if anybody suspected something, let's say you know somebody sharp-minded like you and I suspected that he faked the whole thing, and he was like, he'd actually gotten off at Dunkirk and, mm-hmm. and gone away, and they were looking for him there. He's actually already on a plane heading to say America, uh-huh. and he's, he was never even over the English Channel to begin with. Yeah. So that's another possibility. I think that's. A, I think it's a really interesting possibility. Yeah. The other thing that really caught my caught my eye was that his wife buried him in an unmarked grave. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, because the you know I and, know that forensics were probably pretty young back then. But, oh yeah. You know, the ultimate thing would be to. to to dig him up. I mean, even today, we could probably get some amount of DNA or a yeah. dental records or something to see if that body was really his. Putting him in an unmarked grave increases the likelihood that that, that corpse gets lost. Yeah, there's that. Also, it was built, it was actually buried in the Masson family graveyard. It was a private graveyard. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know exactly what the logistics, legally speaking. I, I assume you can still get a court order. To have something exhumed, but if it's on private property like that, it might be a little harder. Well, but then you could come up with the thing that if you did get the court order or whatever, it all comes through that the records are incorrect. The records have been lost. The right. records were intentionally obfuscated so that it would be harder to dig that body up. I mean, how mm-hmm. many rich men yeah. are buried in unmarked graves? Yeah, not it's that not many. Very it's, common. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's an intriguing thing, and I uh, but. If his body could be found, it would be worthwhile, I think, uh, to actually do a little run little DNA against him. And I assume it's known where his son, Bobby, who, who has to be dead by now, uh, I assume it's known where Bobby is buried. So mm-hmm. let's, you know, let's dig up the bodies and see if they're a match. Oh, I mean, I'm sure there's probably still a Lowenstein bloodline out there somewhere they could. Oh, yeah, there's probably somebody still alive. Might might not even have to dig Bobby up, right? Yeah. Um, So, okay, what what else? Are there any other theories, or is this kind of, or have we settled on this? Because I'm, the more we talk about it, I'm I'm sold on, uh, on, self-disappearance. Yeah, I'm kind of sold on that, too. I think he decided to, uh, you know, and it it may well be, you know, the, um, he he said when this so-called anonymous document came out, accusing him of all sorts of crimes, it, yeah, it was it was just all pure libel, perhaps. But it might have been enough truth there that perhaps he was concerned about perhaps an indictment or two mm-hmm. and thought, well, maybe it's time to just get out of town. Yeah. And that's that's that might be another way. Of, uh, you know, I don't know what financial regulation was like in 1928. It was terrible. Yeah, it might. <laughs> I it, don't know that much. Yeah. But, and it might well be that uh, that, that he sort of knew that uh, if he left then the feds would not step in mm-hmm. and and dismantle his companies or penalize mm-hmm. his partners or mm-hmm. his family or any of that stuff if he just died uh-huh. they would just drop the whole matter hmm. yeah and that is what happened and so essentially yeah by disappearing and quote unquote dying uh-huh. then perhaps he, he you know escapes not just indictment himself and maybe imprisonment but also the destruction of his companies which were kind of key to his partner's well-being and his family's well-being so perhaps he just thought, I'll just go off and live on a little island somewhere on the several million bucks that I've got squirreled away in this Swiss bank account. 
you know which then means you know somewhere out there there's a there's a grave from you know 1945 or 55 uh-huh. of a of a, of a man living under an assumed name yeah. someplace. Yeah, he lived under an assumed name, probably probably got himself a new girl and then fathered another kid, you know, <laughs> who knows? I mean, yeah. So if you're out there and you are the, the you know, the unacknowledged uh, descendant of Mr. Lowenstein, we want to hear from you. Yeah, we'll put yeah. you on the podcast. We'll do that. <laughs> yeah, we totally will. We'll do, a, we'll do a little follow-up episode here. And uh, if you're out there, Mr. Lowenstein, and uh, happen to still be alive for some reason, uh, yeah. we'd welcome you as a podcast guest. <laughs> we totally would. Ah, so what else? Uh, I think that probably wraps it up. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can send us an email at the shocking details podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website. That's www.theshockingdetails.com. We're on Twitter. That would be at shocking details. And of course, we're also on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash shocking details podcast. Until next week, to the loop.